Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Father Mitch Packle. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Holy Word of God through the lens of the sacred tradition that goes back to Christ and His Apostles. Today, we will continue to look at St. Peter's fear-based denials of Jesus our Lord. And we want to compare this to Today's clergy have broken their promises of celibacy and chastity due to the loneliness or lust or misplaced desire for love and all sorts of other problems that sometimes get in the way. Now, of course, if you have a question or comment related specifically to today's topic, we invite you to be part of the show. First of all, you can do that by being here in our live studio audience. We have a wonderful group of folks here. Um, but if you can't do that, you can still call us uh, here at the, during the show. The live program is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And the number, if you are in North America, is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can still call the number is country code 1, area code 205-271-2980. That's 1-205-271-2980. You can also send us questions by writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com or participate and follow us uh, on YouTube. So we're all in all those different places. Now, we're continuing to go through my book called Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can get that book at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 81098. 81098. If you are following along with us, we are beginning today's discussion on page 103. So, last week we talked about how um, the high priest Annas, who was retired, his son-in-law Caiaphas uh, had become high priest in the year 26 AD when Pontius Pilate came to Jerusalem. To the Holy Land as procurator. And he, um, uh, so Annas was the retired high priest and father-in-law of Caiaphas. And he asked about Jesus' disciples, about his teaching and so on. And our Lord had said to him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing secretly. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So he's making it clear that what he has taught has been very much public information, very much upfront. There was nothing hidden. However, in response to that statement, 
uh, we see in uh, John chapter 18, verse 22, that one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness to the wrong, but if if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So this is uh, something that, you know, the, the soldier is the first of many soldiers to become involved in our Lord's suffering. And, you know, this is something that we can see as uh, a way to help, again, further understand how we can bring the suffering of whether it's the sex abuse scandal from clergy or, uh, and I, I really do want folks, and I intended this when I wrote this book, um, to take a look at the wide variety of other problems that many of us have in life. Many people experience various forms of physical abuse, sometimes within their own families um, and in other places. Uh, we, we see our society is you know, increasingly unable to discuss things and so shouting and even hitting has become uh, keys um, to the way people act. So we want to just make sure that people understand that this applies to the situation of the sex abuse scandal, but also many other areas of life that we can all find ourselves in. And here, you know, we can see that the abusive clergy were not committing their abuse out of a principle that they found in church teaching. The church never gave permission to do this. There's no law saying that anybody in the church, let alone the clergy, can be abusive to others. Um, and you have to say that on one hand, they, the, those who committed the abuse were directly rejecting the teachings of Jesus Christ about what celibacy means. Uh, celibacy is meant for the kingdom of God, not for one's own uh, avoidance of responsibility. And it's also going against teachings about lust and uh, any kind of relationship outside of marriage between a man and a woman that becomes sexual. And one of the things that sometimes happens when people break God's law is that they realize they can't defend their own behavior. They don't have a way to say, well, I'm right because of this. There's no, no way that they're right. And so in that, they use raw power to intimidate other people. 
And this is one of the sad realities of bullies. They don't have a principle to be bullies in the schoolyard or anywhere else. And they just resort to raw power because they can't argue their way. They intimidate other people. And in the case of the abuse situation, it was intimidating people sexually, but also with uh, they intimidated their financial victims because many times there were also financial scandals involved in all these things. And these uh, other times they try to intimidate people who do stand up for the teachings of Christ rather than have an argument with them that they can discuss, you know, logically. They just say, well, well, what we see in our culture, you get canceled. There's all kinds of cultural canceling going on throughout the culture, and that sometimes happens by people who disagree with church teaching. They can't defend their disagreement, so they cancel you if you support church teaching. This goes on, you know, in, in the world. Um, they become ecclesiastical bullies, church bullies. We have schoolyard bullies and we have political bullies. We have people protesting on the streets who act as bullies, threatening anybody who disagrees with them. And we also have ecclesiastical bullies. And they need to see themselves in the light of Annas and that soldier who are not trying to follow some correct judicial procedure. They're not doing what is correct by Jewish law. In fact, the fact that they were even having this questioning at night was against Jewish law. You, you can't hold a trial in secret. Jewish law required that it be in the daytime so that other people can be there and other witnesses for the defense can show up. So this is something that we have to be uh, careful uh, to observe. And they were, just as Annas and that soldier were trying to intimidate Jesus into silence, we see people sometimes inside the church you know, intimidating people that disagree with them into silence. On the other side, all of us ought to look to Jesus Christ as the model. He remained humble and truthful. He didn't, you know, simply start to lie to get out of this or anything. No, he told the truth. And he did so straightforwardly and humbly. And in the face of various kinds of opposition, we all have to learn to do the same. You know, becoming a counter-bully um, and using deception and becoming arrogant, this is no way to, you know, win other people to the truth. You can intimidate, perhaps, but you don't win people over to what's true. We have to learn 
from Christ who is truth personified. Remember he had said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And because he personifies truth, he shows us to act in a truthful way. This must characterize us. Now, immediately after that soldier strikes Jesus and Jesus answers him, we see the attention turned back to St. Peter and his denials. So while St. Peter was standing on the porch of the courtyard, this is what is mentioned in Matthew 26, verse 71, and when he, Peter, went out to the porch, another maid saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And, you know, he is just trying to warm himself. As we see in John 18, verse 25, he's standing there warming himself. And while he's doing that, they also said to him, are you not one of his disciples? And he denied it and said, I am not. It's the, this is the second denial by St. Peter. And as a matter of fact, St. Matthew points out in Matthew 26, verse 72, that he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. He adds to it, breaking the eighth commandment about bearing false witness. See, this stands as a counter situation to our Lord. He could have lied. He could have changed the story or said something else to avoid being hit more or whatever. But he, he didn't do that. Peter does. And this is something that all of us have to pay attention to. Again, we live at a time where the commitment to keeping the Eighth Commandment is kind of weak. We see a lot of people end up in court and are quite willing to lie and bear false witness to get out of trouble. We see that happening very frequently at all levels of society. And this is going to be something else that we ourselves have to be very careful we don't give into that temptation. Then comes the third denial soon after, because there was somebody, another bystander, who said that he's a Galilean. In Matthew 26, verse 73, after a while, while the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you are also one of them, for your accent betrays you. You know, over in the Middle East, you know, when I've been over to uh, Israel and Jerusalem, uh, especially with the various uh, Arab-speaking people, the various Palestinian folks, you know, the accent will vary from one village to another. People have an accent by village, let alone by district. And, uh, you know, you can, there's down in Hebron, they have a very, uh, distinct sing-song, uh, kind of, Hua Khalili. They sort of, you know, you can tell the difference in the way they speak. Um, that was true then, too, just as we do in our very large 
country where we have a variety of accents for our own American English. Uh, people, you know, picked up on that. And Peter's response was to invoke a curse on himself. He's not just swearing falsely, but now he's bringing a curse upon himself and says, I do not know the man. And at this third denial, immediately the cock crowed. Now, this is something that we see, um, you know, very much a fulfillment of the prophecy Jesus had made at the Last Supper. Before uh, the, the, you, the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And we see that this is something that is shown in all four Gospels. All four of them mentioned that at this, by this third denial, the cock crowed. And this is very much a fulfillment of a very precise prediction of Christ. Now, one of the things that we also see in all the Gospels is that at that moment of the cock crowing, Peter remembered the words of Jesus. He remembered what happened. But it's not only that he remembers it. There's a very, very interesting, a very poignant detail, in fact. In Luke 22, verses 61 to 62, it says that at that point, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And the word for look that is used in that place means to look intently. And as the Lord is looking at him, Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This aspect of the Lord turning and looking at Peter at the moment of the cockcrow, we can assume our Lord did not hear Peter's words of the denial. He was surrounded by the soldiers. But the, everyone could hear the rooster crow. And he knew that his prophecy had been fulfilled. And that itself is one more indication of Christ's divinity. He knows what's going to happen. He is able to prophesy, but also he knows what's in people's hearts. And that's one of the reasons that he looks right towards Peter with that intent kind of look, not just a glance, but an intent look. And it goes right to St. Peter's heart. And as he does so, he has to go out and he just weeps bitterly. In fact, there was a, uh, a tradition outside the, the, the scriptures, later tradition, that he wept so bitterly that it had furrows in his cheek from where he wept that bitterly. Well, we're going to take a little break. We'll come back and continue on with this episode. So please stay with us.
Before we get back to the text, just want to remind you to mark your calendars for July 17th to 21st next year. You can join EWTN in Indianapolis, Indiana for the National Eucharistic Congress. It's a movement to restore understanding and devotion to the Holy Eucharist here in the United States and hopefully elsewhere. And you can be part of it. Find out a lot more and receive a code for a discounted registration worth almost $80 by going to EWTN.com slash Eucharist. And we'd love to see you there. All right. So we were just talking about the, the second and third denial by St. Peter. And it's important to note that Peter, who had been called by our Lord the rock, that's what Peter means, rock. His Aramaic name, Kepha, also means rock, like a crag of rock. But he was anything but a rock in the way that he shifted away from the truth and denied even knowing Jesus and goes off to weep very bitterly. Now, again, we want to apply this to the situation that we have with uh, the sexual abuse scandal. First of all, we have to admit that you know, priests and bishops who break the promises of celibacy that they made at their ordination to the diaconate um, and religious who break their vows of chastity that they took when they made their vows would do very well to look at their own failures through this lens of St. Peter's failure. He had promised Jesus, I'll die with you. I'll I'll go with you to, to no matter where, you know, and I'll just be with you and stay faithful to you. Even if everybody else leaves, I'll never leave and never deny you. And his word failed. And he failed his word. This is a human problem. It happens in marriages. It happens in families and so many other ways. This is one of the things that goes on with humans. And especially was you know when they break their promise of celibacy or their vow of chastity, they you know do well to consider that whether um, they did it with a man or woman, with a child or on their own, um, they have to understand that this is a failure to keep the word that they had promised. It's a word they'd made, given to God and a word they gave to the whole church. So it, it has a real seriousness. And we have to remember there are a number of things that go on. One, instead of St. Peter focusing on Jesus, whom he did love, you know, he, and, and still did, I'm, I'm sure. He changed the focus to his fear. And he, you know, he was very much uh, afraid. And a lot of times the clergy who fail to keep their vows are also very much afraid. They're focused more on their own loneliness 
um, than they are on Jesus. Sometimes they're focused on the promise of some action that would give them pleasure with another person or that they would like to be loved and that to love another individual. And, you know, this is something that uh, distracts their attention away from Jesus and the word of the promise that they had given him. And this is something in regards to repentance that we can also see, that Jesus is the one who, like with Peter, takes the initiative to turn his attention to the sinner. He doesn't hate the sinner. And this is sometimes hard for us to understand because when somebody commits a grave wrong, we oftentimes are very angry at them, whether it's a priest who fails to keep his vows or a married man or woman that fails to keep his or her vows, we become very angry. And it's understandable because there's betrayal involved. That's why this is so connected with Peter's denials. There is this element of betrayal through denial. And we, we, have, we can understand why we're angry and that anger is a natural re response to the frustration of expecting people to behave responsibly and faithfully and then experiencing their failure, especially when, as in the case of sexual abuse or in the case of adultery or fornication and a variety of other sins, when those happen, there's this feeling of frustration that this other person could not keep their promise. Their word didn't mean anything to them. And this is highly problematic. And this is something that we have to understand while we're angry, God still desires to turn to them and reconcile them. That doesn't mean that what they did was okay. It's not okay. That's not what forgiveness means, that therefore I say, well, okay, I got to accept it. No, it's wrong is wrong. But forgiveness and acceptance of the person as they turn away from wrong, that's what God seeks. And frankly, that applies to every human being on the planet. All of us fail to be faithful to God in a wide variety of ways. And we all need to confess our sins. We all need to be reconciled. So, you know, this is something that's necessary. But then I think Peter's reaction is also extremely important for us to understand because he knew that he still did love Jesus. He did want to be a follower of Christ. He wanted to be a disciple and an apostle. He just failed his own ordination, which was just a few hours before this at the Last Supper. He was just made a priest. 
and he failed so quickly as Christ predicted. But his weeping over the fact that he fell short of our Lord's expectations. He wanted him to be the rock on which he'd build the church. And he was a slide, a moral slide. And he can repent over the harm he did himself and to Jesus. And this is something that everybody who sins, including the clergy who did abuse or family members who are unfaithful, we need to weep over the sins we've committed and repent deeply, realizing the harm done to others, the harm done to oneself, to one's relationships, and be aware of that. And that becomes a first and essential step in reconciliation. That it's not as if you could say, well, you got to forgive me, you know, because you know, I didn't mean to cause that much. No, I want to see the sign of repentance. And for your own sake, you need to be like Peter and show the repentance that goes to the depths of your heart. If you remain arrogant and fail to repent of your sin, fail to examine how your sin harms you, harms your relationship with God, harms your relationship with other people, and does actual harm to others. If you fail to do that because you're too arrogant, then there can be no true reconciliation. It may be waiting for you the way the father was waiting for the prodigal son but the father could not show that forgiveness and reconciliation until the prodigal son was willing to repent and in his humiliation come to his father and say he was sorry. This has to be a process for all of us. In the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola, we spend the first week of the retreat in repentance for sin and contemplating that. This is a very important part. And sometimes I fear that people so strongly want to feel good about themselves that they fail to do the repentance. They fail to consider how bad their sin was. Or they'll look at other people and say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. That, I don't think that's going to be on the questions our Lord asks you. He'll be asking them about their sins. It's time to focus on our own sins and repent of them the way St. Peter did. This is a very key thing for us. All right, we'll stop there and next, we'll take up from that point next week. Uh, I have some questions. Let's start out with a question from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? 
I'm from Gaydon, Louisiana. Good to have you Thank here. Thank you. Good to have you. I can sort of hear that sorghum molasses in that voice. <laughs> so sweet. Yep. Go on. So what, what, what can we do for you today? Well, I was wondering why St. Peter didn't uh, fall into as much despair as Judas did when he mm -hmm. realized that he had denied Christ and fulfilled that prophecy of the three denials. Think about it this way. Look at the reaction of Peter and Judas at the Last Supper when our Lord makes prophecies about both of them. What does Judas do? Certainly not I, Lord. I would never do that. He denies what he already had done. Peter, on the other hand, says, no, even if it means I'll die, I'll follow you. You know, it, he's thinking about the future. He doesn't realize how weak he is. But Judas had already agreed to betray Christ while Peter had just expressed his hope that he would ex you know, love Christ more. So that makes the big difference, I think. All right, we have an email from Ryan. Um, you know, let's, uh, let me read that here. It says, Father Paquette, my uncle's girlfriend died. Sadly, in the 30 years, they did not marry. She strayed from the church, refused to go to church, did not meet with a priest while on her sickbed, and did not go to confession and did not receive last rites, nor the Holy Eucharist. May God have mercy on her soul. I struggle with praying for her soul. It's one thing to pray for the faith of the parted and the holy souls in purgatory. But how does one pray for someone that may have died outside the state of grace and the friendship of God? I know God is the judge and prayers are heard and answered for the faith of the parted. But those that died maybe outside the state of grace, how are these prayers answered, if at all? Ryan in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Ryan, that's a very sad situation. It really is. You know, that, that she made a very definite rejection. There's no doubt of that. I, and even to the last minute, and I think... You know, I would still pray for her. What we don't know is why she rejected uh, the sacraments. I, I have no idea. Um, and she's culpable for, for what she has done and her choices. But there may be something else where there is a small, small crack open in the door of mercy. And what you can do, Ryan, is that even if it does not help her, then you just ask our Lord to direct your prayers for one of the forgotten souls. There are plenty of people who have died that nobody knows. People that, um, you know, are not able to have anybody alive anymore to pray for them. And uh, we have so many people who are hurting and dying out on the streets, some of them taking fentanyl. They don't even know it is fentanyl. They're not taking it on purpose. 
and pray for them. You know, say, Lord, if I can be of help to my uncle's girlfriend, to, for you to show her mercy, uh, um, prayers for her. If not, pick the soul that is least or is most forgotten and least known to anybody else, and I pray for that person. That would be a good way to pray for them because there's a need to pray for so many souls, especially in this time of November. This is the month of praying for the poor souls, and we do well to do so. Okay? But I'll try to keep them in my prayer too, and pray for your uncle as well. All right, we're going to take a little break. We'll come back in a couple minutes with more questions and emails, so please stay with us. get to these other questions, just want to invite you to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. We'll be speaking with John Martinoni, many of you know him from radio and elsewhere here on TV, and we'll address some of the problems with Protestantism, and especially in regard to the importance of the church and how we can engage in good conversations with our Protestant friends and family members uh, that will challenge them to think uh, scripturally about the faith and logically, in particular about the role of the church. So we'll be discussing that. All right, we have a question here from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? Lafayette, Louisiana. Lafayette, Louisiana. I love that place. That's good. <laughs> we love you. Yeah, and any of our viewing audience goes gets a chance to go there, make sure you stop and eat. <laughs> there's some good cooks plenty. down there. <laughs> so what's your question? I asked this in Bible study, and of course we didn't have Father Sean Pine with us, so I'd ask Sister, at the crucifixion, Mary we know was assumed into heaven, mm -hmm. but with that was left at the crucifixion was John and Mary Magdalene, mm -hmm. and they were the only two that weren't martyred, correct? Mm -hmm. As far as I know. I wonder if there's a hidden meaning behind that, that they stood there and everybody mm -hmm. else left him. We know that's something I've never considered, so the meaning was, remains hidden from me, too. But I, I think there's something to consider. The one point I would think about is how not too long before the crucifixion, on the way toward Jerusalem, our Lord had been asked by St. James and St. John, the two brothers, to sit on the right and the left. And he said, can you take this cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism? And one of the brothers, James, was the first apostle to die, and he died by being beheaded. And John was the last apostle to die. Though he didn't die, uh, you know, by martyr's death. He suffered a lot uh, earlier in his ministry, but not as a martyr. So. There's 
that's one issue, but there may be a lot more to think about that. And this is why, one of the reasons that we study scripture and pray carefully to listen to see what are some of the other elements that we may not have thought about, but we would do well to contemplate and see if there's something relevant for me in, uh, and other people uh, in the meaning of a question like that. So it's a good question. Sir, where are you from? Lafayette, Louisiana. Oh, I see. It's part of this whole group no. here. So, <laughs> yeah. So what can we do for you? So when it comes to anointing the sick, uh, say someone was uh, their whole life good person, but it came down that right on their deathbed, they wanted that, that grace, like mm -hmm. uh, that sacrament. What, what would that consist of? At that point? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, if they asked uh, for a priest to give them the anointing of the sick, we're allowed to give it to them. You know, that uh, it's at their request, you know, you don't go around, you know, non-Catholics and saying, anybody want a sacrament? You know, no, 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 no. You, you don't do it. But if the Lord puts it in their heart and, and they ask for it, this is something that we are allowed by canon law to, to do for them because there's a movement, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of time at that point to do RCIA. I mean, they're dying. So, uh, you know, we can go ahead with that and, and give them the sacrament. Okay. And a couple times I've been able to do that. And then we have a YouTube viewer named Maria who sent in a question. Father Mitch, what does a wife do when a husband continues to be unfaithful? Does she continue to just forgive and stay, or does she leave, Maria? It's not easy to, to answer. There are a lot of factors going on there. Um, I've certainly known, you know, various folks who, in the face of the infidelity of a spouse, they consider a variety of difficult choices. What happens to the children, if there are any? What kind of support do they get? And another very big issue is the person, and it's not so unusual, not so unusual, that a person who's unfaithful to a spouse sexually may also be pretty mean physically and cruel physically. If there is any endangerment of either the spouse or the children, they definitely should get out of there as soon as possible. If it's not that kind of situation, then the other factors, including the hope for eventual reconciliation and conversion of the offending spouse, um, may be hoped for. I think uh, it would be worth taking a look at the life of someone like St. Rita, who had to put up with that. And she became holy through that herself. She also was able to win her husband away from that life of sin. Now, it meant he get, got murdered later on, 
because the people he was sinning with didn't want him to stop. So they killed him. But he died in the state of grace because she remained faithful. But this is something that you have to take a careful look. And I wouldn't look at the, the specifics of your own situation by yourself. I would call in people you trust dearly to help you analyze what's going on here for everybody involved. That would be a very important part of the, the process. And, you know, you may want to contact a group like Retrovi. Couples have come back from this mess. Couples have successfully returned from the brink of ending their families and it becomes stronger and in fact became able to help other families because this is not unusual enough in our society. Over 50% of married people admit, both men and women, so over 50% admit infidelity. And this is something that, um, you know, the culture uh, tragically encourages because the, the, the fools who say, well, you got to follow your feelings. No, you don't. No, you don't. Um, you, a lot of times your feelings make you an idiot. You know, um, for those who know anything about deer hunting, we depend on bucks being stupid during the rut. Um, that's how they end up on dinner. So this is, you know, following your feelings is not always so smart. Um, so that's where you have to take very careful examination. I have an email here from Gustavo. It says, Dear Father Mitch, I had the privilege to hear your show recently, which I enjoyed very much. I have a question, if I may. If the Second Vatican Council, in fact, did not initiate change in the church, how is it then that it has gotten away with so many changes such as no Latin in the Mass, etc.? Is there no one in charge of these matters? I cannot understand unless there are individuals purposely intending to harm the church. Can you please explain to me if I'm wrong about this? Viva Cristo Rey, Gustavo. Well, Gustavo, first of all, uh, the Vatican Council did offer you know, some possibilities of making changes. But what it did not do is impose the vernacular. It, it never said in the council document, I urge you to read it, urge everybody to read it. It's not exciting, but it's important to know what it said. It's the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, uh, and it is... Um, uh, very, very informative to read what the council said. And it did not impose removing altar rails or facing away, you know, the, the, toward the folks uh, rather than toward the altar. That's not there. Uh, it didn't, it said that perhaps the vernacular could be used, but then added that pride of place should still be given to Latin 
especially in the commons parts of mass, in the Roman rite. Uh, and by the commons, they mean the Kyrie, which is in Greek, the uh, Gloria, the Credo, the Sanctus, and the Agnus Dei. They encourage that to continue on in Latin. So, and what, well, that's why we do it. What we, the way we do Mass here at EWTN, um, that's following exactly what the Vatican Council said to do. Uh, we're not, you know, doing anything different from the Council. But what happened after the Council was over is that there were a number of liturgy renewal studies that had been started back in the 1920s. The Benedictines had begun it uh, with trying to go back to the best manuscripts they could find in their monasteries after the French Revolution destroyed so much to get to the best way of singing Latin chant. Then in the 20s, Dominicans picked this up and they had a theory that the church liturgy has developed a lot and it was very simple in the early church. So they wanted to get back to that early simplicity and remove things that they thought had come along from uh, the Middle Ages and have the simpler early form of the Mass uh, because there would be more vigor in it. Um, and that, those ideas and others uh, started to come to the foreground in the mid-1960s after the council was over. And there were a number of individuals, cardinals in particular, who were pushing for that, and they made those changes. Other people said, say, well, we can change this then, we can change that. And, and you had a certain opening up of the idea of changes in the liturgy that went just a little bit wild. Uh, and if you, those of you who are old enough to remember the late 60s and early 70s, some people thought that everything was up for grabs. It wasn't. You know, Pope Paul VI, St. Paul VI now, had made it clear that you, you can't just experiment. And the Vatican Council was explicit and clear. I think it's like paragraph 117 or 18 or 20, something like that, says that no one, not even the priest celebrating the Mass, has the authority to change anything in the liturgy. That's in the council. So I can't just do what, I, it's not my mass. It is primarily the mass of Jesus Christ. And it belongs to him. And I, as a priest, need to be at the service of Jesus Christ and his church when I celebrate the mass. And C.S. Lewis had made this point. I think it's correct. He compared the liturgy to a dance. That when you are dancing with somebody else, you assume that they know the same dance. But if you start doing a cha-cha-cha while your partner is doing a waltz, somebody's feet are going to be stepped on. And that's kind of what happened 
for a lot of people over the last 60 years that the changes and that people put in there without any authority to do so were abuses. Now, I also think with the new translation, there's less abuse than there has been in a long time. It's great. And we need to have that settling down. But it's key for us to seek to encounter Jesus Christ at Mass, His Word and Him in the Holy Sacrament, and let Jesus change us rather than we changing Him or His Mass. That would be the key. Well, we have to end. May the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by His peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we can bring you this network and all the programs, this one and all the other shows, only because the network is brought to you by you. Keep it in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. That's how we pay our bills too. God bless you and thank you all for your support. Thank you.